53. Here we go. Rush. <coughs> Head of a man. First. Top. Beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten the law. <coughs> Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your co uh, compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. I see how I love see how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Let's see here. We have uh, August 24th is today. <clears throat> Let's see here. The time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing God a service. This is because they have never known the Father or me. In Paris on 18 August 1572, there were hopes for peace between the warring Catholics and Protestants. On this day, a royal wedding between the Protestant King Henry of Navarre and the Catholic Margaret of Valois brought together the two hostile factions. Margaret was the sister of young King Charles IX of France and the daughter of Catherine de' Medici, the powerful queen mother. Protestant and Catholic nobles who had fought each other for 10 years turned out for the celebration. Thousands of Protestants came to Paris for the wedding. The festivities lasted for days. Calvinism had come to France in 1555. Soon there were 2,000 French Reformed churches, and nearly half of the population had embraced the Reformed faith. French Protestants became known as Huguenots. Fighting broke out in 1562 with the massacre of Vassy, in which 23 Huguenots were killed and 100 wounded. The Huguenots fought back in three successive wars of religion. By 1562 and 1572, there were 18 massacres of Huguenots, five of Roman Catholics, and 30 assassinations. While Catherine the Queen Mother was planning her daughter's wedding, she had also been plotting the assassination of Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, a popular French war hero who had, <coughs> excuse me, who had become a leader of the Huguenots. On August 22nd, the assassination attempt failed. This ignominious plot so soon after the royal wedding threatened to embarrass the royal family. Near midnight the following night of the 22-year-old French king, brother of the bride, shouted to his mother in a fit of rage, if you are going to kill Coligny, why don't you kill all the Huguenots in France so that there will be no one left to hate me? Following this impetuous directive, Catherine ordered the murder of all the Huguenots leaders currently in Paris, including those who had attended the wedding. The massacre began August 24th, 1572, which was St. Bartholomew's Day. Mm. The gates of the city were closed so that no Huguenot could escape. Admiral Coligny was murdered first as he knelt in prayer. Many of the Huguenot nobles were guests at the royal wedding and were lodged at the Louvre. They were called into the courtyard and shot one by one as they appeared. King Charles IX watched approvingly. During the night, the homes of Paris Huguenots had each been marked with white crosses. Before daybreak, messengers were sent throughout the city screaming, kill, kill, the king commands it. 
A murdering frenzy fell on the whole city. Whole Huguenot families were taken into the streets and murdered. Unborn children were cut from their dead mothers' bellies and smashed on the pavement. The dawn of St. Bartholomew's Day revealed thousands of martyred Huguenots. But the savagery was not without cost to the king. Charles IX soon began having nightmares about the massacre. In less than two years, at the age of just 24, he was dying. His last words were plagued with visions of his victims. What bloodshed, what murders, he cried to his nurse. What evil counsel have I followed? Oh my God, forgive me. I am lost. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was one of the most horrible days that God's people have ever experienced. But Jesus said that worse is still to come. How can you prepare yourself for even worse persecution if you live to experience that future awful day? For that time will be a time of greater horror than anything the world has ever seen or will ever see again. Matthew 24, 21, which does not apply. That's speaking to the Jews about the uh, time after the rapture. So they got that wrong, but that's okay. They got a lot of things wrong in this book. They get the history part well, but their citations are quite often not really fantastic. But that's, you know, I my friend and I, uh, he does a, a written update every week, a prophecy update. He's going through the uh, uh, Matthew 24, 25 area right now. And uh, he uh, will say what I have been saying for years. He says, as Charlie always says, if you mix dispensations, you will have wrong doctrine. Not maybe, not possibly. You will have error in your thinking and you will have contradictions in your doctrine. That's all there is to it, because when Jesus is speaking under the law to Israel about their future, the church hasn't even yet been introduced, and then you take those verses and say, see, this is going to happen to you, there's a problem, because Paul says that's not the case, and we're going to find that out, ooh, in just a couple weeks, we're going to start getting into two Thessalonians. For right now, we're in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, which the I think we've got, according to Jim, six verses left. No, we got, no, we have eight. Eight verses we'll left. Make it. And um, out of those eight verses, uh, it's probably a lot of salutation. Sure. Yeah, mostly. I, the last four are. Uh, before that, there's a little bit of uh, uh, doctrine. But um, you know, it should go pretty quickly, I would think. I haven't looked at my notes in years, so we're going to find out right now. But... Here we go. Start on 19. Wherever you want. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. 20. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Okay, this one says, do not despise prophecies. Paul now turns to prophecies. He just said, do not quench the Spirit. That's what we talked about last week. It is the Spirit who worked through the apostles and prophets to give us the Word of God. This is noted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll go there really quickly, Ephesians chapter 2, and it says there, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's not the verse I want at all. That is absolutely not the uh, verses I want at all. Uh, through the prophets. Oh, yes, it is. Okay, having been built on the foundation. There it is, next verse, of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, so um, it says there, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Um, I was sitting in a Bible study. Actually, I was doing the Bible study, and somebody was sitting in that Bible study, and uh, 
uh, mom was there with her son who was probably 25 or so. And uh, she came to me and she says, he believes he's a prophet. And uh, can you talk to him about that? How old was he? Uh, he was about 25. Yeah, and so anyway, um, uh, he used this verse to justify that he's a prophet. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He says, I know that I'm a prophet and the foundation is laid because of me. You know, he's obviously nuts, but that's not the point. That's called taking a verse out of context. context. Okay, so it says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, what is the foundation? Jesus. Jesus. Well, it just says that having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. How can that be? How can Jesus be the foundation if it's they built on? built it. Well, that's... Like, Let me read you another. I don't remember. It's in 1 Corinthians, I believe. And I should have had this ready. I didn't know I'd talk about this. But uh, just in case you ever have somebody that claims to be a prophet and they use that verse to tell you why, um, you want to go to Bible Gateway and then you want to type in the word uh, foundation. Okay. And uh, we go to uh, 1 Corinthians, and it says there, um, For no one, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's right. Okay, so if Jesus Christ is the foundation, and they, Paul says in Ephesians that the uh, apostles and prophets are the foundation, how do you reconcile that? It's really easy. Don't overthink it preach Jesus. They preach Jesus. That's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of what Paul is saying. That is the context. And if you take a verse out of context, you have now formed a pretext. Okay, so we'll go back there and read it again. And it says there in Ephesians chapter 2, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, the apostles preached Jesus. And the prophets, the prophets proclaimed and spoke on authority of Jesus, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we have it right there that Jesus is the proclamation, not that, who cares who they are? I mean, if you think about it, they're just apostles and prophets, all right? That's not the important thing. When Isaiah made a proclamation in the Old Testament, what did he say when he started his proclamation? Thus says the Holy One of Israel, right? He, he is proclaiming something that the Lord is saying. He's not the foundation. Now, what he says may be the foundation of what he's saying, but he himself is not. He is a tool a being used by the Lord, a vessel to speak the word of the Lord. Same thing. When Jeremiah spoke, he would say, thus says the Lord. Okay, he was very clear, and he must have said it about 18 billion times. So you have to keep things in their proper context. And when people say something like that, you just redirect them and say, you know, you're wrong, and here is why. Uh, so I felt bad for the guy. He was unconvinced about his uh, uh, not being a prophet. He's probably still to this day sure that he is, you know, the leader of the church. But, you know, you will come across people like that from time to time. Um, I was, who was I talking to? It was in my house. I think it was Sergio was over and he had some, oh yes, Sergio and somebody else was at the house. Who was it? And they were having a conversation and um, 
I said, you know, they were talking about an issue that I don't want to give away because that was between them, but it's kind of on the same level as what happened in my house. Uh, I uh, have a friend that lived right over three blocks from here, and I went, worked with him for years, and his roommate, he called me and he said, Charlie, um, I think you need to talk to this guy. He thinks he's, you know, like a prophet or something. And he came over and he sat down in the house and I said, well, what can I do for him? And he says, well, I'm, I'm John the Baptist. <laughs> True. And so we talked about it for a while and then after uh, a while, and he said, and because of that, I'm Jesus. And I said, so you're John the Baptist and Jesus. And this was very confused thinking, but it was, it was apparent that he was like, you know, somebody we know in the projects that was schizophrenic. And he, he wasn't able to process things properly. And so, you know, I let him know. I said, you have schizophrenia. You need to be checked out. But, uh, you know, the cure to your problem is Jesus. What you need to do is not believe that you are Jesus, but believe the gospel of Jesus. And uh, anyway, I don't know if that helped him or not. I never heard back from him ever again or from my friend. He never mentioned him again. But you got to be ready for things like that because there are people out there that really think incorrectly about things. And... Uh, uh, you know, anyway, so um, where were we? Oh, yeah, so we were talking about the Spirit worked through the apostles and prophets. It wasn't that they are the foundation in and of themselves. There's, the Spirit is preaching through. And what did Jesus say? Uh, I will send you the helper, and he will testify of me. He will reveal me to you. So Jesus is the foundation. He is also the cornerstone. He is also the capstone. He is we are in Christ, and if we're being built into a building, then he is the, the substance of who we are. He is our all in all. He is everything. If you deviate from that thinking, you're going to have a problem. Jesus is the point of Scripture. He's the point of our faith. He's the point of everything that God is doing in redemptive history. <clears throat> a foundation is laid only once. The chief cornerstone is Christ. Upon him, the foundation is laid. Okay, and that is what the apostles and prophets are doing. They are laying the foundation, Jesus, okay, upon him. The early church was given prophecies to establish the church. Those which were recorded in the Bible are then the foundation of what Paul speaks of. The words of the New Testament apostles and the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament prophets are the work of the Spirit. Despite 10 jillion claims of prophetic utterances, a word from the Lord, visions, dreams, and supposed divine revelations since the completion of the Bible. Think of this now. Think of what I'm telling you. There have been thousands. You, if you go onto YouTube right now, I bet you you could pull up within uh, an hour a thousand different people claiming a prophecy or a word from the Lord. I bet you. Okay, now think of what I'm going to say. Not one of them, and this has been going on for 2,000 years, not one of them has added anything to the foundation which was laid. Not one of them. If it did, it would be in the Bible. God would have said that we need to add this in there, and which is why they have a Book of Mormon, because they believe that it's something that was necessary to be recorded. Or the writings of Ellen G. White, for example. She's the, anybody? Yeah, Seventh Adventist. Okay. Now, the Seventh Adventists have been pulling away from this lately, but their doctrine, their the basis of who they are as a group of people is Ellen G. White. 
they hold her on the same level as scripture. You're not going to find this on their website anymore. Um, it, it was very evident up until a few years ago, and then they start kind of withdrawing it because it's so obviously wrong. But they get people in, and then they will give them the instruction once they're in the church. Yes, Ellen G. White was a prophetess, and we hold to that, and that's why we have the seventh day instead of Sunday. You know, the, the Catholics started the Sunday thing, and blah, blah, blah. It just goes on. It never ends, okay? But uh, the Ellen G. White had these prophecies, and she went to heaven in visions and this. And, and if you read them, they do not square up with anybody? The Bible. The Bible. And therefore, they cannot be revelations from God. Okay, they're as obvious as the nose on your face that these are not correct. And if you think about what I just said, I will read you it again so that you can think about this. When you go on and you watch somebody make a prophecy, or we had somebody very famous in the prophecy updates every week. I'm not going to give his name because uh, we'll just wait until after 25 September. Did anybody watch the other prophecy reports and watch him, what he said this past week apparently? I had two people confirm it to me. Um, uh, he predicted that the rapture was going to happen before 25 September. And this well, is, I heard that, but I don't know who I heard that well, from. Well, it That's doesn't matter. Let's not talk his name. Don't bring it out. I but won't. but he is very famous. You all have heard his name. You've probably watched him before. I've watched probably three minutes of his stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I don't watch other prophecy updates ever. If somebody says, would you check this out? I say, tell me what part of it you want, and I'll watch that five minutes, and I'll answer that. I'm not going to watch a 45-minute update to give them an analysis of what they don't need. So I've watched about five minutes of this guy twice. But he came out very, very popular. And if he's wrong, which he will be, yeah. then uh, he's just destroyed his ministry. I, I mean, think of that. Think of the stupidity of coming out and doing this after all of these years. He was doing prophecy updates before I was. He's been doing it for like 12 or 15 years now. So um, anyway, whatever, okay? But uh, think again what I'm saying. A word from the Lord, visions, dreams, and supposed divine revelations, like the rapture is going to happen. Since the completion of the Bible, not one, not one of them has added anything to the foundation which was laid. If it did, then we would need it in this for our doctrine. We would need something more than what God has given. God gave prophecies, I'm talking about foretelling, not forthtelling, foretelling prophecies during the time of the early church because they didn't have scripture. They had people that would make proclamations to ground them in their faith. That was something that the Lord deemed that they needed. We don't need that anymore. We don't need any of those things anymore. And if somebody claims that they are saying them, don't listen to them. Uh, that's my recommendation because all you're going to do is get misdirected. That is all that is going to happen because you're saying that this is insufficient for your life, your doctrine, and your practice. And that cannot be. If this is God's word and it says amen at the end of it, closing out the 22nd chapter on the 21st verse of the book of Revelation, then we don't need those things, okay? Unless this is not sufficient, but it is, okay? So, um, uh, not one of them has added anything to the foundation which was laid. We, we have the word of God, and we are not to look for another word in addition to it. If you go online, once again, and you type in, you will get people, and I'm not ta just talking about people that are supposed Christians, which you're going to get billions of them, billions of them from churches all over the place and different languages, but you're going to get people that make prophecies in Buddhism 
and Hinduism and shamanism, they're all over. They're posting on YouTube constantly because you get a lot of money if you have people following you and doing that kind of stuff, okay? If you look, they'll always have a donate button. They'll always have their videos monetized and they're sitting there hoping that people will listen to their nonsense, okay? Because they'd rather do that than go out and learn the Bible or get a real job, okay? Didn't Earth, Wind and Fire do a song September 25th? Uh, yeah, they did. Uh, wait, September. Uh, da, 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 yeah, um, it's coming to my mind right now. But yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire did do a song about September. I don't know if it was September twenty fifth, but um, anyway, yeah, you can. Uh, it's a great song, and I'll listen to it um, when I get home. Maybe if I have time before dinner, uh, just because I haven't heard it in a long time. But yeah, it's. It, it, I remember great, great tune. Uh, anyway, I don't know what the words are about, but uh, anyway, okay, so um, uh, in that now complete word, this here, the Bible, in that now complete word are the recorded prophecies which Paul speaks of as they were given by the Spirit. Not accepting them would, to be, would be to quench the Spirit. So if there's a prophecy in here and we don't accept it, then we would be quenching the Spirit. And it would be further to despise prophecies. Paul, when Paul says, don't despise prophecies, he's not saying, don't despise prophecies by people that come onto YouTube and make them. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's saying that there are prophecies that are given in Scripture. Don't despise those prophecies, okay, which are valid utterances of God. But that's what people will do. They'll take, you know, a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I said that sometimes somebody will write on the board behind them, rightly dividing the Word of God implying that he is rightly dividing the word of God. Well, people will also start their prophecy up there. You know, I'm going to give you a word from the Lord or they'll have it on the thing behind them or on a banner running down below. Do not despise prophecies. And they're trying to get you to believe that what Paul is writing about pertains to them. Okay. That's not what this is speaking about at all. This is speaking about what is given in the word of God. There are prophecies even in the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled. We're not to despise those. They will come true. A great example is found right in Scripture, where Peter says that people will deny. What, how does he say it? Um, come on, Charlie. Um, uh, uh, where is the coming of the Lord? Even since our fathers fell asleep, everything has continued on as it has. That's a paraphrase there. But even Peter says that people are going to do this. They're going to despise prophecies because it says that the Lord is going to return. And Peter says people will come and say, where is the promise of the return? Don't despise it. It will happen. Okay. And I was, I was out working maybe this morning, maybe yesterday morning at my morning job. And I was stewing over the fact that this guy did that, that he would come out and say the rapture is going to happen by 25 September. Great. If it does, if we're all out of here before 25 September, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that what we've been waiting for? I'm so excited. But does it make any difference at all? No. Literally none, because we're going to be out of here. Who cares if it happens tonight or if it happens in a year from now? The difference is that if it doesn't happen by September 25th, people, real human beings that believe the message of the Bible because of what these people are telling them will be disaffected. They're going to be downhearted. They're going to be, some of them will walk away from the faith. I've got one friend. He listens to every prophecy update that he can listen to. And one time he called me and he said, I've just, I've just given up. I've just, I've lost my heart. And they keep promising. They keep, pro and I'm saying, why are you listening to those guys? 
Why are you even listening to that? They keep luring you along from week to week to week so that you listen to them. They'll get more hits on YouTube and they'll get more revenue from YouTube when they send them a check every month. Okay, why are you listening to those people? Learn the Bible. This is where your heart should be. Learning the Word of God. Don't despise prophecies. They're right there in the Bible. They will come true in their appointed time. But it, it, it is violating the word of the Lord to predict the rapture. Mm -hmm. He says explicitly in Acts 1, 6, and 7 not to do that. Okay, not to set the times and the seasons which the Father has set under his own authority. The Lord knows when these things are going to happen, and all we're doing is damaging people in the process by doing that. And so I'm very, very upset at this person. I will never recommend anybody ever listen to him again, ever. And that may only be for 25 days, or it may be forever, <laughs> but I will never recommend anybody to listen to this person if they email me and ask. I'll say because he did something damaging to the people of the of the church by what he has done. Anyway, um, it, it's just a wrong thing to do. Paul's words of this, oh, I read that. Um, uh, yes, I didn't read that. Paul's words of this verse are not speaking about supposed claims of prophecy by people today. As I said, they'll put it on the banner. Do not despise prophecies, okay? Except in the interpretation of those which have been given. We're, his words are given to us as an exhortation to rely on the word of God, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 1 verse 3, the word of God has been delivered. When Jude wrote that, he didn't realize that his words were going to be included in the Bible. Maybe he did, but my guess is he did not. They determined that his words were valid to be included in Scripture because they contained the power of God, etc. There was a point, though, however, where the canon was set. And once that canon was set, it has been set for 2,000 years, right? Actually, 1,546 years up until the Council of Trent when the Catholics needed to justify indulgences and purgatory and some other uh, poor doctrine. And so they included as canon the Apocrypha, okay? That was at the Council of Trent, 1546. And so now the Catholic Church has added in all those books in between, uh, you know, Maccabees and, Maccabees and, and one, two, yeah. Three. Anyway, so they did that, but that is not appropriate. The canon was set. As a matter of fact, the guy that translated the Latin Vulgate, anybody? Begins with a J, ends with Jerome. Yes, very good, Jerome. Uh, Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate, which has been the, the standard Bible for the Catholics for 2,000 years, okay? Uh, he said the Apocrypha will be included in the canon of Scripture over my dead body. And that's exactly what happened. About, you know, 1,200 years later or so, they did it, okay? He, he said this is obviously not something that belongs in the Word of God. All right. It's like you've also got the pseudepigrapha. It includes things like the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. They're clearly not scripture. They have nothing to do with scripture. They were never considered canon by the Jewish people. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, none of them were in the sacred repository. They were on a different type of, uh, of papyrus. yeah, papyrus. They weren't on parchment. You know, they they were completely separated from what was considered the canon of scripture to the Jewish people. And yet to this day, people cite the Jubilees, which is little Genesis, as if it's doctrine. Then the book of Enoch, and they their websites developed about the book of Enoch and how we need to, you know, know this book. 
they were never considered that. Historically, it's fine to read that kind of stuff, but it doesn't add anything to your walk with the Lord. The only thing reading those is going to do is give you a historical reference of what was on the mind of some Jew who decided to write a pseudep pseudepigraphal means false writing. That's all it means. Pseuda, pseudo, okay, and pigraphal is uh, graphic, you know, uh, writing. So pseudepigraphal, it's a false writing. So don't get caught up in those things because you're wasting your time unless you are reading them for historical value. I've read all of them. I don't tell people not to read them, but not in the sense that you are putting that in with your Bible time, okay? The letter of Aristius is a great, great letter. It's where they, uh, you know, they have the Greek translation of the Old Testament. How did that come about? A Jew wrote the letter of Aristius, and it gives you the background information of that, okay? It's obviously not canon. It's got things in there that didn't happen, but it gives you a historical reference of those type of things. It doesn't take long to read, so go read the letter of Aristius, but know that it is not canon in advance, okay? Uh, it's like if you read Edgar Allan Poe. It's not canon, right? You're reading it for historical reference, for maybe macabre reference because he writes some macabre stuff, or he, you know, if you like reading, um, what's his name, Sir Conan Doyle, uh, Sherlock Holmes, well, Poe was the first guy to do that type of literature. All right, if you've ever seen The Murderer in the Rue Morgue, that was him, okay? So, but everything has a purpose in life. The Bible has its own sacred purpose, and we don't want to add to it, and we don't want to misuse it, okay? It's, a, it's the most important thing that you will hold in your hands until the day you hold Jesus. That is it. Someday you're going to give him a big hug, and you're going to say, I've waited all my life to meet you. But until that day, this is is the most sacred thing that you are going to hold, okay? Be, treat it reverently, treat it with care. Um, let us be wise and discerning and not be blown around by false claims of suppo supposed prophets today. There is one word, it has been received and we are to hold fast to it alone for our life, our doctrine and our edification. Okay, that doesn't mean you can't be edified by other things, but this is where you go for your spiritual edification. All right, my wife edifies me when she comes, when I come, you know, I'm typing and she'll walk up and she'll say, which she doesn't do very often, by the way, oh, I really like that sermon today. That edifies Charlie Garrett, okay? Sergio will do that once in a while, and he doesn't do it very often too, which tells me that my sermons bore most people most of the time. But when they do that, it always makes me feel good. Okay, I really like that sermon, and I'm just, I, it touched her in some way, okay? And, uh, you know, I gave the example of Jack. He came up one day. He's only done it once. Out of all the sermons he's watched come, come into the church here, he came up one time, and he said, that sermon was great. And nobody else even, everybody else was sleeping. There was drool coming out. It, it was one of those things. It was very intricate. It had a lot of numbers in it, and he was processing just like he was back at work 25 years ago in the job that he did, okay? And it, he got a kick out of it. The word will always find something to inspire somebody, okay? It may not inspire you today the way Charlie Garrett delivers it, but somebody else may get something out of it, okay? So um, edification, the spiritual edification, this is where we get it from, right here, okay? We can edify people all day long, 
uh, hopefully telling them about Jesus or, you know, encouraging them about him. But, you know, people have bad days. You can just go up and you sit with them and, you know, whatever. That's, that's helping them. But I'm talking about spiritual edification. Life application. If you want to hear prophetic utterances from the Lord, open your Bible and read. Let the word speak to you the word which God has spoken. Okay, obviously you can tell, and if you disagree with me, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with it, but I do not believe in extra biblical revelation. Not one person, you know, if you do, why, how can you say that the uh, vision of Fatima, how can you say that's not true if you say, I believe this guy on YouTube? How do you know? Truthfully, how do you know? Joseph Smith, when he got the Book of Mormon, how can you know that he wasn't telling you the truth? And anybody can do this, and they do it all day, every day, and twice on Saturday. It doesn't matter how convincing that person is. How can you know? You can't, but you can know this. And that's why I don't believe God is giving us extra biblical revelation, because you can't know what those people are doing or thinking, but you can know that God hasn't spoken through them. You can know that, all right? If you accept one prophetic utterance outside of the Bible, you might as well just watch them all day long. Just believe everything that you hear because you have no reference at all. Zero, okay? Anyway, that's just me. Um, let the word speak to you which God has spoken. He's given us this word. I would trust this with my life. As long as it's in the proper context, okay? Once again, if you take Matthew 24 and you start shoving the church into it, that's not the proper context. We are not going through the tribulation period, okay? Once again, 2 Thessalonians 2 will be there in a week or so, and we're going to see that timeline. It's very clearly laid out. And he's not speaking at all about what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He's not speaking at all of that. They're completely separate issues. Dispensations are given for groups of people at certain times. The dispensation, I'll give you an example so you can understand exactly what I'm saying. The dispensation of the law, okay? Who was that given to? Jewish nation. Were Israel. we ever under law? Is there any person outside of Israel that was ever under the law of Moses? No. Unless they joined Israel, they were never. Not one person, not one human being outside of the covenant people of Israel were under the law of Moses or are under the law of Moses. And yet, to this day, churches all over the world shove the law of Moses back in people's faces. They do it all day long, okay? It's inappropriate. Not one person was ever under the law of Moses outside of Israel. And every Jew to this day that has not come to Jesus is under the law of Moses. That's the way it is. Okay, I've got something, uh, where am I going to say? Oh, I'll read it in the uh, Prophecy Update on Sunday about exactly that issue. Uh, very short and to the point. I think it's uh, three very short tweets that I'll read exactly that issue. Um, uh, we're not under the law. That dispensation belongs to them. The church is a dispensation. It began at a certain time. It is going to end at a certain time. The people that are in the church are in the church. No person outside of the church is in the church. Can you agree with that? Sure. There's not one person on this planet that belongs in the church that is not in the church. And that is because they have come to Jesus Christ by faith 
or with the exception of 1 Corinthians 7.14, okay? Outside of that, there is nobody outside of the church that belongs in the church. And the things that are taught in the church apply to the church. So if you mix the church with the law, which Jesus is speaking, you have now mixed dispensations. They don't fit. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with this, and there's nothing wrong with this. They just don't fit. They're not addressed to the same issue at the same time. Having said that, I'll go even one step further. Every Jew under the law today, every single Jew under the law today who trusts in Jesus Christ moves from the law to, Christ. to the church, to the, new covenant. to the new covenant. They are in the new covenant. They have passed from the old to the new, and yet they're still Jews. Right. They don't become un-Jews, and we do not become Jews when we come to Jesus. We enter the commonwealth of Israel. Paul explains that in the book of Ephesians. The church is sharing in the commonwealth of Israel. That doesn't mean that we have become Jewish people. So always keep the dispensations straight. If you don't, you will have you will have contradictions in your theology. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Okay, so we'll go on. We're in verse 521 now. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Okay, I wasn't even there yet. 521, let's see here. <clears throat> uh, test all things. Hold fast what is good. Pretty close. Test everything. Hold, on. Hold all things. Okay, very close. All right, uh, note. Some manuscripts begin this verse with but, thus showing a contrast between what was just said and what is now said. Whether but belongs there or not in the text, the words of Paul still imply the use of but, okay? Either way, Paul is showing us a contrast to the previous thoughts. You got this thought and you got this thought. So you read both of them again because I don't have it open. Uh, when you say both. Uh, 20 and 21. Okay, 20 says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, test everything, hold on to the good. So you can see but belongs in there mentally. Even if it, it's, it's not a, written in there, it, he's saying, don't do this, do this. So it, it, they're, they're tethered. They're tethered, yeah. And so even if but is not in your translation, mentally your mind is doing that, okay? Don't do this, do this, all right? Either way, Paul is showing us a contrast in the previous thoughts, okay? So uh, Paul has been giving a list of positive exhortations intended to keep the believer on a happy and sound course. Verses 19 and 20 concerned the latter. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, in order to ensure that we accomplish those things, he exhorts us to be wise and discerning. In order to do this, we are to test all things. Okay? The word test is one that speaks of validation. Its root was used concerning proving or testing of coins in order to confirm whether they were genuine or not. Okay, do you remember the test on the old uh, uh, quarters when they went from one to another? Uh, you would scrape the edge and you'd know that, it, because if uh, 1964, I think it was, they went from being all silver to, you know, now they're filled with something else, okay? Yeah, 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 sandwich coins. You got me hungry, don't do that again. Um, okay, so, um, uh, and you could test a quarter by rubbing on it and you would know if somebody was, and that's the way that they used to do that. You'll see a lot of old coins are oblong because people would test to make sure they weren't getting a, a fake coin or something. But um, if you wanna test the old quarter very simply, 
it's really easy to do. Just do that, and when it lands on the ground, you'll know it's all silver. It makes a completely different sound. A beautiful ting. So anyway, there aren't many of them left. Most of them have been, you know, uh, scarfed up. But once in a while, you'll come across an old quarter, and you'll say, it just doesn't look the same. There's something different about this. And just flick it up in the air, and when it lands, you'll say, that's silver. Okay, um, so uh, let's see here. Where was I? It speaks of validation, okay? The testing of coins in order to confirm whether they were genuine or not. There's a real currency of the land, and there, then there's that which is counterfeit, okay? Unless one was careful, that person could easily be duped into believing that he possessed something of value, when instead he possessed only a fake which had no value at all, okay? So uh, let me make a note here. I want to change something right here and here. And um, I hate when I do that. You're typing something and you say he, and then you say they in the same sentence, okay? And you're, when you're typing, you're always thinking a little ahead. And so now you've got a discord in the sentence. It should be he and then one, or he and then not he and they. So, so I the always try to correct. The pronoun thing has got you. The what? The pronoun thing. The pronoun thing has got me. It's, it's really upset me too. Anyway, so um, you have um, uh, what is... Fake and what was the thing that you you said it a couple times about counterfeit? How do you? Oh, if you know what the original is, you you'll you'll you're, you don't need to you know don't need to know what ten thousand counterfeit counterfeits. Is. No, you, you just need to know the original. The original. In fact, I, I forget who said that. Somebody said it right here in Bible. Study. Yes, but they were citing a, a secret service person who said when they when they are looking for counterfeits. They don't need to know what counterfeits look like. They need to know what the original looks like. And then from there, you can determine the counterfeit, okay? And that is what we do with the Bible. We don't need to know all the nonsense that's out there. If we know this, then we will be able to discern that. What is incorrect? That's what we need to do, is to know the original well enough so that when we hear something, we can say that, and you were mentioning that earlier, you know, you can begin to tell the difference in translations and you can start to think and process differently because you're involving yourself in the word of God more and more. And so if you know what the original, you know, the, the Koreans, the North Koreans are really good forgers. They forged billions and billions of U.S. dollars, okay? But you can still tell that they're false, all right? But a lot of people can't because they don't know the original, all right? So um, uh, you just have to do that. And if you know what the original looks like, when you see a wrong one, you will at least have a suspicion. And then you can work out your suspicion from there, okay? So Loretta said that. What's that? Yeah. Loretta it could have been Loretta. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see here. She's got a lot of wisdom in that head. She's a nice lady. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, Paul's admonition here is that we are to test the fire of the Spirit, and we are to test prophecies. Is this the true Spirit of God, or is it a corrupt counterfeit? Is this a true prophetic utterance, or is it a lie from the devil? Okay, and you should be able to know the original well enough to know the false. But it's not easy. And, you know, reading the Bible takes a long time. Even if you read 30 minutes a day, it's going to take you 154 days to get through the Bible as an average reader, average speed reader, okay? That's half a year. So if you read uh, that fast and you do it 30 minutes a day, you're only going to get through the Bible twice in a year. Then I got to tell you what, there's a lot more than two readings of the Bible to know what the Bible says. I've been reading it for years and years and years, and 
I read it morning, I read it during the day, and I read another version at night. And I, I listen to it all day while I'm driving, and I still come across things that I think I never thought of that. It just it happens. And so uh, I don't care how much you read this word, there is always something that God has got tucked away in there that will surprise you. Okay, uh, I love that title that, uh, what was his name? Um, C.S. Lewis, one of his books was Surprised by Joy. Well, that's what you get if you read the Bible and you think on the Bible. You'll be surprised by joy. No doubt about it. Okay, is this the true spirit of God? Is it a corrupt counterfeit? You're going to know as you develop in the word of God. Like the currency of the land, what is real is often very hard to distinguish from a forgery. Even Paul relayed this truth to those in Corinth. He does in 2 Corinthians, he says, let's see here. It's going to take a second. I got to get to the 2 Corinthians 11, and then I'm going to take you to verse 12, and it says um, 12 through 14. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So you've got false, and you've got people that are deceived by that, okay? Uh, the devil knows scripture well enough to cite it to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would flounder. Jesus knew the Bible better than the devil, and so he cited it pro appropriately back to the devil, okay? That's the way that we should be able to do it, is to say, that is not right. What you're saying is incorrect. It is manipulating this word, etc. Okay? Um, how can one tell if something is true and correct if they are not intimately familiar with it? It takes either a specialist or a special chemical to test and tell if a $100 bill is real or not. The specialist is trained in the most subtle nuances of the original bill. And the chemical test is able to quickly identify the false bill as such. If you go to Publix and you give them anything more than a 20, and quite often with a 20, they run that pen right over it. Sure. I call it every time I hand them money, I say, it's time for the black line of death. Dun, 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 dun. And then they, they, they I know them. I see them every Sunday morning, the same Does that ladies. Does wear off or? What? Does that wear off? I've never noticed no. it. On oh, I don't know. I don't know if it wears off or not, but if it's false. Because I never get a 20 that's got the line on it. Yeah, I know. So I don't know if it wears off or not. I have no idea. All I know is that they run it across there and I do the same thing to them every Sunday. You know, I, here it comes, you know, and then they, the yeah, so there you go. Anyway, um, uh, it, so you, you take that quick test and you can tell if it's false. And if it is, then what happens? It gets reported to the yeah, Secret Service. And it doesn't matter if you forged it or not, you're liable for that as long as it's in your possession. Now, they're very good about deducing very quickly if you did that or not. I mean, they know. But um, uh, you are not supposed to be carrying counterfeit bills. All right. It provides a comparison to what will occur with an original bill. Original bill stays yellow. False bill, black. All right. That's just the way it is. It takes them one second. But like I said, usually they go 50 and above, but some of them will actually do the 20. I think they do it when they're bored because, you know, it, it, when they're busy, they never seem to bother with the $20 bills. But anyway, in both cases, the original is the standard 
and the false can only be identified as such when compared with it. The lesson for us is obvious. We cannot know what is false in our faith. We cannot. It is impossible. I was thinking about that before we got started today. I was just sitting there doing something, and I was thinking how important it is to know the word. Oh, I remember my friend Tom sent me something. He's writing up something, and so I, I uh, made some notes on there, and I said, you know, you would have no idea about somebody came up and they started reading you this and saying, you know, this is what we want to do and this is what you should do. And, and you have no idea if he's telling the truth or not. You have no idea unless you know what the Bible says or you're willing to go through every reference and look at it and say, wow, is that out of context, right? I mean, anything, any, just the whole tithing thing. Did we go through that at the beginning of... Uh Study no, no, no. This is something entirely different. Just something he sent me this morning, and I said I'd try to get to it. So I, I just gave him some things I think he can add to it. But anyway, um, uh, you know, the, the tithing thing. Hmm. And that it, it's a little complicated because people have thrown so much baggage on people over the past 10,000 years, or I should say 2,000 years. But um, uh, it's actually not that complicated of an issue. Once again, I'll ask it. I asked it a couple minutes ago. I'll ask it again. Who was the law given to? Jews, Israel. Is there any person on this planet outside of Israel that is mandated to tithe? No. It's not a precept anywhere except in the law of Moses. Why would you take that and shove it back on your congregation? Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, people just can't let go of things. All right. It belongs in the law of Moses. It doesn't belong anywhere else. Anywhere else. It should never be addressed in a church ever, and yet it's like preeminent in some churches. I have, um, Sean Hannity one time was talking about, he said he wants to give up on Catholicism. He is done with Catholicism. This is about six or seven years ago. And he said, I really like the message in some of these Baptist churches. He said, except they just keep shoving tithing. He said, it gets maddening. And he says, I just can't go there. I'm like, that's because it's wrong. The Lord doesn't want people to be chased out of a church over that, okay? But you don't know unless you know the original, and you know it in its proper context, okay? Um, you know, it was interesting when we started our conversation when I first came in. You went to the Psalms to prove what that, that oh, yeah, preacher thing, right? And, and uh, I, I couldn't find it in, in, in the, uh, the Psalms, so I went to where uh, Jesus and Peter were talking, and Peter said, how many times must I forgive yeah. my brother if he asks for forgiveness? And he, like, but he's like, he's asking. He has to ask him, like, don't tell me I can't ask God to forgive my sins. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know. The it, whole thing is. Like people will come at you with stuff, and, and you know. Unless you know the word. you're defenseless, you're going like, oh, it must be right, I don't know, I'm not gonna say anything, because. Yeah, you know, well, but just like, so you know what he's talking about, is it, he was having a conversation with somebody that says, you do not have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. He's already forgiven you your sins. And so the whole thing is, that that's the premise. You're acknowledging that Christ died for your sins. If you don't do that, you're not going to be saved. Okay, but he's saying that's not necessary. Okay, it is necessary. And uh, he said that if you have to ask for something, then it's not a gift. And I said, okay, so David, in the, I took him to the 51st Psalm, and I said, have mercy on me, O God cleanse me of my iniquities. Well, he wasn't ordering God to cleanse him, so he must be asking for forgiveness, right? You have to come to God and ask him. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Please save me. Okay, now that's not 
actually written that way in the you Bible, but that's what that's that. implying. Right. It's implying that you are acknowledging that you need Jesus and that he is the one that can do it. Okay, so uh, having said that, um, if we are not willing to train ourselves in a detailed understanding of God's word, it is not possible for us to test all things. Right. Right. If you're going to test all things, you must be literate and competent in the word of God. No wonder so many cults and false teachers have arisen and why so many once sound denominations have completely fallen away from what is true. I started the sermon last week talking about the church I was ordained at, right? And all the people that were there, the sermons that were delivered were very good. I heard one sermon by a visiting pastor one time where I was so angry, I said, I, I just want to get up and leave here. But out of respect for the congregation, I didn't do it. But he said something that was totally wrong. Other than that, the preacher at the church and anybody that he assigned to fill in for him were always doctrinally sound. And yet the people that were in that church ended up going to the most crazy denominations you can think of. That means that they were not willing to check the preacher they were listening to. They were at a church and they were listening to that preacher and they were just going along with whatever he said. That is a real problem. I happen to know that what that preacher was preaching was correct. Those people obviously did not because when they left, they went to they went to Calvinist churches, they went to Pentecostal churches, rolling around on the floor. I'm like, didn't you learn anything? You just sat there and, you know, church becomes something that is like, it's, you know, I'm going to go because I like the people that are there or they have good food or the, the music is good. That's not what church is about. Church is about fellowshipping with people that are honoring the Lord through his word. That's it. Okay, everything else is just frills. It's just extra stuff that's thrown in. And if it entices you to go, great, but you better know the word before you go. Because if not, this is writing about you. Paul is writing these words. Test all things. Okay, uh, where was I now? Um, uh, yeah, but when we are careful and when we test all things, according to the one true standard, we are then able to hold fast, Paul's words, hold fast to what is good. We can do that because we know what is good here. That preacher said what is in accord with this word and therefore I'm going to hold fast to that. Okay, we can easily reject the bad and we can quickly discern who the false or just plain crummy teachers are because we are aware of this word. All right, and that's why, you know, I will say this. I was thinking it here earlier. I uh, uh, think it quite often. This is not a slam on anybody because people have lives, okay? People actually have Thursdays that they have things to do. We did this on Thursday because a lot of people that come to this Bible study, you know, don't attend this church. And so, especially during the winter, they go to other churches. And so I thought to accommodate them, we'll have the Thursday Bible study. But the numbers that attend Bible studies are usually a lot less than that attend on Sunday morning. Okay, and that's just the truth. It's just the way it is. And it's that way in every church I've been, so it's not a slam on anybody. It's just the way it is. But I would say that the people that attend the Bible studies, either here or that watch them later, care about the Word of God. They truly care. Because that's what Bible studies are for, is to study the Bible. Okay, Su Sundays are not always that way in people's minds. They're there for whatever reason, okay? And you can't get into their heads and find out what it is. But there, especially in this church, though, we got people that live <laughs> like miles away. And it wouldn't be realistic 
to get off work and to try to make it all the way down here. It, I mean, it just wouldn't be. But I know that they love the Word of God. And I also know that they will watch during the week, and maybe they're even watching right now. Okay, so uh, that's great. They care about the Word, and they want to learn the Word. And not only do they do that, but I know they watch other Bible studies. They're getting the Word of God all week long, and that just blesses me. I tell you what, you can never get enough of sound Bible studies. Not saying this is sound. You have to determine that yourself. You have to go home and test what is good. But uh, Bible studies are where you should be getting a lot of meat out of the Bible. Okay, um, uh, in today's world where everything in the Bible can be quickly accessed, this is one of the things that is so wonderful, is that <clears throat> I do not, I was not trained in Hebrew or in Greek. Hey, Thor, how are you, buddy? Thank you very much. Just set it down. Have a great night. Give Faith a hug for me and for Mom, okay? Love you. Um, uh, I don't remember what I was saying now. Thor came in and threw me off, and uh, I was going to make a point. Oh, easily accessed. I was not trained in Hebrew and Greek, okay? I still, if I look at a Greek word, I can't tell what that Greek word is as far as being parsed. In other words, is it a participle, or is it a, just a, a past tense verb, or is it a future verb? I can't look at it, okay? When I look at the word... Um, uh, coming, I know that it's a word that is present tense. He's coming, okay? I can't do that with Greek. I have to, every single word that I study on uh, the six, or I'm sorry, seven days a week, I do a Acts Bible commentary. That's the book I'm doing right now. I do one verse. This morning, I was telling Jim before, and Mark, before we started, it took me over an hour to translate that verse. An hour. Okay, sometimes it doesn't take a couple minutes. This morning was so complicated. So, um, I have to look at the parsing of every single word because I wasn't trained at Dallas Theological Seminary in Hebrew and Greek. But that doesn't mean that I'm not qualified to do it. And why? Because we can access this right online. Anybody can do this if they're willing to take the time and do it because you have the word, you've also got the strong number. It'll tell you all the possible translations of it. You've got, uh, you know, the actual Greek. You've got it written in Greek, and then you've got it uh, transliterated into English. You've got um, several other things here. I'm not thinking of what that is. And then over here, you've got what's called morphology. And that is how the verb or the noun or the adjective is broken down, okay? And I can do that with both Hebrew and Greek. Even though I can't look at the word and tell what that word is, I, I'm much better at the Hebrew now than I was before, but I still need to look every single word. And that's why it takes so long to type those Monday sermons or these daily commentaries. But you can do it. Okay, so we'll go on now. I've said that. You can, you can do this. In today's world where everything in the Bible can be quickly accessed, everything, even the morphology of every single word in the Bible, every word, is given the morphology if you go to the right website. It is easy to have people suddenly come forth sounding as if they are specialists in the word. You know, oh, well, Strong's 571, anytime somebody says Strong's 5718 can mean, don't listen to them. Don't do that. They don't know what they're talking about. That is the easiest thing in the world is to go over there and say, well, this word can mean this and this and this and this and 800 possibilities. Just like we have words, it can mean 50 different things. It doesn't mean that in the context, that word can mean that. Everybody got that? You must understand the morphology of everything has to, they say when you go to um, seminary 
and you take Greek one or Hebrew one, they say you now know enough to be dangerous. dangerous. That's right. Okay. So um, everybody is a specialist because they know how to access Strong's Concordance. That's a scary place to be. All right. Uh, people suddenly come forth sounding as if they are specialists in the word. In fact, it appears many are specialists because everyone has this amazing access to the word, which was never available before. But this is a scary place to be when putting one's trust in someone because they have supposedly mastered a single specialized portion of the word, such as future prophecy and nothing more. If that's all that guy knows is future prophecy, he's one of these prophecy guys that talks online all the time, I would be very careful listening to him because he doesn't know anything else about the word and everything is tied into prophecy and prophecy is tied into everything else. You can't just say, okay, this is a discipline and we're gonna talk about this and not the rest of it. It all ties together. When you have a family, you know, you can't say, well, the, you know, that's the family over there when mom's sitting there and all the children are running around somewhere else. She's part of the family. You can't know the whole family unless you know the whole family. Okay, it's an important thing to consider. Um, there must be a full understanding of the whole counsel of God in order for a teacher to be fully equipped. Likewise, the layman must have a full understanding of the word of God, or they will be easily duped by these seeming specialists. The study of the word is hard. It takes much time, and it takes a great deal of mental energy. But without it, there is no way we can test all things, and there is no way that we can hold fast to what is good. And that's what Paul tells us to do. All right? You have to be very, very careful when you do these studies. You know, don't just go to Strong's and say, okay, this word can mean whatever. And uh, this morning, oh, I was so excited. I, I translated the verse, and then after I did the analysis, I had to go back and correct one of the words because I, I needed to know it's, it's such a great, I, it's so exciting. They get on a sailboat and they sail here, and then it says this, and then it says this, and then it says this, and one of the words doesn't seem to fit. It's just, now, the King James Version, Vincent's word studies just slammed them on this. They said, the King James Version, they call it the AV. The AV often takes the, the uh, same Greek word and translates it many different ways. Okay, even in the same context. And so you don't get the sense of what's being said. He said, but in this one verse, they've translated many words one way. And every one of these words was unique. It was beautiful. And they kept saying the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And it's completely wrong. So anyway, I'm, I did this. I'm going through this verse. And then there's nothing on the name of a certain thing. And so I did a search on the Bible and I came up to Hastings Bible Commentary, which is a great commentary if you ever read it, okay? The guy's very thorough, he's very meticulous and he cites every, excuse me, everything that he's doing. So he goes in there and he analyzes this word kind of arbitrarily, which I needed. And in there he says this and therefore this. And the the problem with this one verse is that it says they went from this place to this place to this place to this place. But some texts drop out the third place. It says it went from this place to this place, it skips Tregillium, and then it goes to the next place. And that's why I wanted to know which is correct and why. And why would it drop out? Because there's always a reason why something is missing. 
okay? In this case, it didn't seem to make sense that it would refer to trogillium. And he said, the reason why this happened is because this word is mistranslated by the AV and other translators. And he explained the entire scenario of it. I was so excited when I was done with that. It took two full hours to do the whole commentary. Usually it, it takes an hour, but I could have just gone on all day with it. It was so beautiful. But uh, he explained what was be happening with this word. They didn't actually stop for the night there. They got to this place and then they made a turn. It, the word, it's like parabolo or something. I can't remember exactly what the word is, but it means to, uh, comes from two words. One is to cast and one is like away, but that's not what it is. It's like that. So we'll say cast away. Okay. So does it mean they cast away at this location? They dropped anchor. What does it mean? And he explained that it means they got to this point and then they went over here. So it was actually three days, not four. But the translators couldn't figure out why it would, so they just dropped out one clause. They took out this place, Tregillium. Hastings took care of it. He explained exactly what was going on. I was so thankful for that commentary. So that is hard work. That is the type of thing that when you're done going through that, you are going to be mentally exhausted. And it is worth every single bit of what you put into it. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, Monday sermon typing was so complicated. It's Ehud, the guy that got stabbed in the chest with the, uh, the, the, the big fat guy. And Ehud went up and he killed Eglon, the king of Moab, okay? It is so complicated, the Hebrew, that there were not two commentaries that agreed. They didn't disagree, they just didn't know, like, we don't know, okay? It was so exciting getting there. And I said to Sergio, what do you think? And he said, man, it's that complicated. And so instead of being giving you an answer, I gave you like four options. Because I don't want you to think this is it and this is it and for sure, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you four options. You can just think through it on your own. It was that complicated. And like I said, people are saying, well, it's this because. But it's not that because. You have to have an understanding of what's going on. But wow, what a fun passage. I've only done half of it. Next week will be part two, so we get to hear Jay. Um, anyway, it, it was just very exciting to type. It was... I was so excited I wasn't tired at the end of the day. That's rare. Normally on Mondays I'm so worn out. I just I'm I was like this. I was just so excited. It was what a great look my hair standing up just thinking about it. Oh, wow. What is the Lord telling us in the stabbing of a big fat king? Right? It, it it's so exciting. Okay, and we'll find out next week I'll know if I can figure the typology or not. I think I've got a hint based on something that was said about five verses earlier, but I don't want to you know, that might not be it. So we'll wait and see. It's what an exciting passage. Okay, uh, 520. Oh, wait, yes. Um, oh. they, they say the King James Version, AV. Is that Alexandrian version? No, or? authorized version. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. The reason why it says authorized, and they will use that. They'll say, well, this is the only authorized version. Yeah, yeah. That's not what that means at all. I know it doesn't. What it means is that it was authorized used by, by, the state. by King James. Right. He authorized it for common use within the English, uh, whatever you call it, the UK or what, the British Empire, whatever. That's all that means. I know that. But people say it's the authorized version, which means that nothing else is authorized. That has nothing to do with it, okay? Um, there's also another term you will hear, which is uh, textus receptus. It is the received text, okay? And they say, see, that means that it was received from God, and therefore it's the only version you should be reading. 
That's not what that means at all. When you take something to the printer, they say textus receptus. We have received the text, okay? That was just a term that they used and it was stamped on there and so they call it the TR or the textus receptus. So once again, everything has a basis. You can't just take it out of its context or you suddenly have made a pretext. It's not the only authorized version and it's not the received text from heaven. It's neither of those things. Anyway, uh, life application. Concerning the Bible in today's world, it seems everyone is a specialist. The wise person will read the word day and night to be kept from these specialists, and he will be careful to not get duped by them. Know your Bible. That is what I would ask you. If nothing else you do, know your Bible. It is your source of knowing if you're being duped by the guy sitting in the pulpit or by the guy sitting on the YouTube video, okay? You have to know this word in order. Now, I'm not saying that not to watch people on YouTube. There are a lot of people that have sure. really great analysis of scripture or sermons that they put out from their Sunday, okay? That's not what I'm saying, okay? But you have to be the one to know what is right. And when you're watching that guy, I, I mean, it happens to me all the time. I'll have 15 minutes and I'll turn on something that comes up. You know, you get all those videos and it'll say, here's a video by this guy about this. And I'll watch it and I'll say, I have never thought of that. What a great insight. I'm not saying that you're not going to get good stuff on YouTube, but you've got to know the Bible first to know that you're getting correct stuff. Not just good stuff, but correct stuff. So please know your Bible. Please read your Bible. Cherish your Bible. All right, and now we're in verse 522. Before we go further, let yes. me just say that uh, it'll also help you when somebody goes to a, like a, a theologian or some preacher that you've listened to for a long time. Oh, yeah. You don't see any problems, and they're going like, oh, he's a heretic. It's like, why? Why yeah. are you saying that? And then they'll tell you something crazy, and you go like, well, one, I'd never heard him say that or even hint it, on that. Yeah, hint it. And then you can kind of look through and like, you're just, you know, yeah, you, have a, you have a bug about stirring, for whatever reason. He's stirring the pot. Right. But I will say, that guy is a great theologian. This is one thing that when you read the commentaries of people from the past, we'll say Albert Barnes and Charles Ellicott, both great, great scholars. Both mm -hmm. were trained very uh, well in the Greek and Hebrew, obviously, when they were in seminary. They know the languages. They have read the Bible many times. They, they refer to things that you would never think of. And yet, there are times where Charles Ellicott will say exactly the opposite of Albert Barnes. And you'll say, how can that be? They both know Greek perfectly. So knowing Greek or knowing Hebrew does not mean that that person knows what he's talking about. Okay? It does not. And so that is what's known as a source fallacy. He knows this and therefore this. So you got to be careful because every one of the people I read every week, Cambridge, they're a bunch of liberals. They dismiss the Bible. They tear it apart. Okay. But they know the Greek very well. It's surprising how well they, Cambridge, will give more insights into what is going on in the Greek and the Hebrew than anybody I know. I refer to them not because they have good Bible analysis, because they don't. They, oh, that was written 800 years later and, you know, by a little Jew in a shop over in uh, Germany. Or, I mean, they, they're just crazy. They don't really say stuff like that, but you know what I'm saying. But they will analyze the Greek and they will give you hints about it that nobody else even talks about. And that is invaluable. Even if they don't handle the Bible well, their understanding of Greek 
is really good. They, it's Cambridge. I mean, they, they know the classical languages. So uh, don't just dismiss things because the person is bad. You might learn something, but be very careful about how they handle scripture itself. Okay, there's no error in the Bible. This was not inserted later. This is not wrong. And you get those comments from Cambridge constantly. All right, but their analysis of the Hebrew and Greek can be just it's so important in understanding what is being relayed. For example, they'll say something like, and I always check it to make sure it's correct, but you know, I, I may not read every word in this because it's very basic, okay? But they'll come out and they'll say, well, this is, this is um, accompanied by an article and it should be translated and here's why. And you'll think, it's not rendered by anybody. And then you'll look at it and you'll say, sure enough, they're right. So they, they just, Broken clock. A, a, a broken clock twice. is right right twice a day. That's exactly right. And they do get things, so I read them, okay? But I usually, when I'm reading Cambridge, I usually, I say it every, I say it every single Monday. I just, I just hate these people. I just, I say it out loud. I'm talking to the computer. I say, Lord, I just can't stand these, because they're diminishing the word of God. And but they're, they're, they're Hebrew and Greek insights forget their theology, their insights into the language are really, really valuable. So, uh, you, you know, just because somebody knows a language does not mean that they know what they're talking about. Okay, Cambridge, but here's another thing. When you're reading the Cambridge Commentary, you've got 66 books in the Bible, you're going to get at least 66 different scholars. It's not one guy that does the whole thing. Right, they assign, you're going to do the book of Malachi. And my guess is that they probably had five or six different people to analyze Deuteronomy, for example, because it's a big book. So you've got all these people and you can always tell when this person really cares about the word of God. So when I say Cambridge, it doesn't mean all of it. There are some of their scholars that loved the word and they cherished it and you can tell by their comments. But then you get, you turn the page and now you get somebody that's saying, well, this obviously was written by a Jehovist and you know, 700 years later at the time of Daniel. And I just, I get so angry at those people. But I don't mean to dismiss everything about Cambridge because there are good people that were in there. It's like if you go to any seminary, you're gonna have a lot of people there. And some of them don't care about the word, they just wanna become a preacher so that they can become famous or whatever, I don't know, okay? And then you get people that all they wanna do is share the word because they love Jesus. Okay, so I don't mean to slam Cambridge so much, but usually, usually they're very liberal. So I gotta say that because I don't want people to be bad-mouthed when they're standing in heaven. He said, Charlie Garrett said, and, I apologize to you in advance, buddy. Okay, go ahead. 522. Avoid every kind of evil. Okay, abstain from every form of evil. Okay, they're close. Let's see here. The translation here gives a much better sense of what is being conveyed than that of the older King James Version. It says, oh yeah, terrible. Abstain from every appearance of evil. That gives, yeah, exactly. That gives the idea of evil being projected outward from the person. As if we are to abstain from everything that looks like evil. Thus, one would be doing works in order to please men, regardless as to whether the person was engaged in evil or not. If one thinks it through, one cannot abstain from everything that looks like evil. And that is not the intent. The words form of rightly explain what is meant. 
Evil comes in many forms. It comes in thoughts. It comes in actions. It comes in words. I know when I get angry sometimes that my thoughts are evil. And yet I don't act on them, right? I don't come out and do something. I may not say anything. And then there are times where my words may be evil, okay? But my actions aren't. And then there are times where my actions are evil. All three of them are acting together, okay? It comes in many different forms. These are things which are morally wrong and with which the Lord would be displeased. Whatever type or form of evil there is, we are to abstain from it. To demonstrate how appearance is incorrect, an example might be that of a person walking down a street where prostitutes congregate. Another person might see this and say, Ooh, that supposed Christian is hanging out with prostitutes. In fact, however, he was going down the street handing out tracts about Jesus. Okay, so you're not abstaining from every appearance of evil. That's an appearance. Somebody said when, in fact, I was not doing that. Okay, I heard one time, and this is something that I would never want to even consider, but if it brings people to Jesus, whatever. I, I heard of a guy that would hire a prostitute to talk to her about Jesus. She belongs to him for the next 30 minutes, and so he would hire her and he would say, you're my time. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And that was his ministry. And that's fine, but I, I just, you, you, you want to get rid of every appearance of evil? You couldn't do it with that guy. Anyway, you know, but he just, he, that was his thing. You know, $30 is $30 or whatever. I don't know. But uh, so that was what he did. And if it works, great. But I just, that doesn't, you know, and there are all kinds of things you could do like that that would be, you know, very effective you know, you just got you got to draw a line somewhere. So tightrope. Um, the what? Tightrope. Tightrope. Yeah. You could, you yeah. Could easily fall off. Well, you know, not if you're standing out in the street for thirty True. minutes. But still, whatever whatever the thing is, it just you know, there's got to be uh, the right person to do something right. like that. Anyway, in fact, however, he was going down the street handing out tracts about Jesus. Thus, appearance is a faulty idea here, and it actually matches what the leaders of Israel accused Jesus of. He's eating with sinners and uh, yeah, uh, tax collectors. They accused him of every appearance of evil, when in fact he wasn't doing anything of the kind. They were judging by appearance and not by what actually occurred. And that happens all the time in the world, even today, okay? Forms of evil, or maybe better, types of evil, however, explains the thought. We are to keep ourselves from engaging in prostitution. We are to keep ourselves from being drunk. We are to keep ourselves from murder, adultery, backbiting, and so on. This is what Paul is admonishing us, and thus it is set in contrast to the words of the previous verse, which said, hold fast to what is good. In holding fast to what is good, then we will naturally abstain from every kind of evil. Hold fast to good, you can't grab onto something else, right? Um, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, then your eyes are not somewhere else, right? You can only do one thing at a time in life. They, I, I was reading something recently about multitasking, and it actually isn't a thing. Multitasking isn't actually a thing. Everybody does one thing at a time. But you can have different things going at the same time but you're focusing on one as you're doing it. And so uh, when you are focusing your eyes on Jesus, you're only doing one thing. 
you're not doing anything else. You are focusing on Jesus. You're not looking anywhere else. So um, uh, multitasking is true in the sense that you're doing a lot of things at one time, but you're only actually doing one thing at a time. So multitasking in today's world is just you're doing them quicker, right? Uh, in the old days, you might spend all day making one nail and you know for a door and you know now you make 10,000 nails while you're eating a sandwich okay whatever um, but you're still only doing one thing at a time uh, life application <clears throat> now there that is true you can eat a sandwich while you're reading so that's um, life breathing. application what breathing too. breathing you're breathing at the same time don't breathe when you're eating a sandwich because then you're going to swallow that and I'll have to do the Heimlich maneuver on you and I don't want to do that um, there are times when it may appear we are engaged in evil when we are not. We stand or fall based on the Lord's evaluation of our conduct, not in that of others. Mm -hmm. It is right that we should present ourselves before others in the best manner possible. In the end, however, people are fallible and the Lord is not. When faced with doing what is right, even when it may be perceived as wrong by others, we are to choose the right. Okay. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. I, we got time. Yes, we got time. I think. Wait, wait, wait. Let me see if I can get this done. Twenty-three. Uh, it's a long one. Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, oh, we're gonna try it. We got ten minutes. We'll okay. try it. Go ahead. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Next week is going to be really short if we don't, because I'm not going to get into a new book. So I think we should probably wait on it. How long is it? The commentaries? I'm going to do it. You know what? We'll just have a short one next week, and you know maybe we'll think of something to talk about afterward. Okay. The previous admonitions have been given by Paul one after another in rapid-fire succession. Each has looked to man's efforts before God. Now, as an emphatic contrast to that, we read the words as laid out in the Greek, himself, moreover, the God of peace may sanctify you. There are man's instructions concerning his efforts in a relationship with God through Christ, and then there is the special blessing of God apart from man's efforts. In the English translations of this verse, some add in the word and at the beginning, and the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. Others use now to begin. Now may the God of peace himself. The and makes it sound like God's sanctification is dependent on our efforts. In other words, if you do these things, God will sanctify you completely. However, the type of verb used is optative. It is a mood that indicates a wish or a hope for those being addressed. Think of this. I wish these things for you. Therefore, it seems more likely that Paul's words are simply a petition for this to come about. He has asked them to do their part, but he is giving a sense of hope that this will occur despite the effort of his readers. And that is correct. We will be fully sanctified when we stand before the Lord. We are already positionally sanctified. Already. Paul speaks of our sanctification in Christ, and he speaks of it as a done deal. Even while we're being sanctified in this life, hopefully, we are already positionally sanctified in the Lord, okay? And yet, he does not in any way negate that our efforts are unnecessary as we live out our lives. Otherwise, Paul would never have given these exhortations. 
He's telling us these things because he wants us to do these things. Our life is going to be better. Our life is going to be more directed towards the Lord. We're going to be a better example to other people and so on. Okay, this is what he is doing. He's telling us to do these things for those and many other reasons. We have our part for happy living and blameless conduct in this life, but we have a hope that God will follow through in order to sanctify us completely, despite any lack or failure on our part. Think of the people that go to church that never read the Bible ever, ever, ever. They got saved, they love Jesus, and they don't know anything about the Word. They're going to be just as sanctified as you are, okay? That's going to happen. They're going to stand pure, holy, and righteous before the Lord. They're just not living it properly on the way there, okay? But this is what we are asked to do, okay? So there's something going on here that we should be doing. This is seen in Paul's words elsewhere. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he tells us that the will of God is our sanctification. And so he gives exhortations which will make that come about. However, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and elsewhere, because he does it several times, he notes that God has sanctified us. Past tense, done deal, already. It's done. That was based on our faith in Christ apart from works. God looks at us and he sees us without sin because of Jesus. He looks at us and he sees us as sanctified because of Jesus. He looks at us and he sees us as righteous because of Jesus. It's done in God's eyes. We have met the requirement, faith in Jesus, and it is done. Okay, but we are still to be doing these things. All right, with that understood... Paul then completes the verse with, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, the New King James Version incorrectly places the word whole. Uh, Yes, instead of being tied to spirit and body, it should be tied to preserved, such as is done by the Berean Study Bible. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that just tying the word into the wrong clause can change the entire substance of what is being said. Paul is not hoping that God will preserve our whole whole spirit and body as if they could be partially preserved. Rather, he is anticipating that God will preserve us so that we will be entirely blameless at the Lord's coming. See the difference between the two? In other words, it is the efforts of God of the previous clause, not man's efforts of the preceding verse, which Paul is putting his hopes on. Man's efforts could never, ever be so relied upon, but God's power can be trusted. Understanding this, Paul petitions that we shall be preserved, that it will be in a state which is entirely blameless, and it will be, Paul's words, at the coming of the Lord Jesus, which is going to be before 25 December, by oh, September, by the way. Right, I would think so. Uh, well, we'll hope so, but if it doesn't happen, we're just going to keep pressing on. Mm-hmm. As this will occur at an entirely unknown time, it is a demonstration that we are, past tense, sanctified for this purpose already despite our human efforts. 
Paul has exhorted us to conduct our lives in a right and proper manner, but it is not that effort which will ensure our preservation. He wants us to do these things. He wants us to live holy. He wants us to be good examples so that we will bring other people to Jesus, but that is not what is going to preserve us. Jesus Christ is going to preserve us from beginning to end, from the moment you called on him until the day you go home. It is he who is preserving you, not yourself. Okay, and thank God for that. That is not what Roman Catholicism teaches. That is not what other denominations teach, but that is what the Bible teaches. God has sanctified you. God will glorify you. It is a done deal in his eyes because God covenanted with you through the giving of Jesus Christ. The blood was shed. You accepted it. It is done. Life application. We have a responsibility and a duty to act in a right and proper manner before the Lord. There are things we are to do, and there are things we are to not do. But though faith in, uh, through faith in Christ, in, in that alone, we are sanctified and preserved for the time when the Lord comes for us. Let us be prepared because we have been so prepared. He's done it for us, so we might as well act like he has done it for us. That's why we're in Bible study. That's why we want to live out the life that we should live. We want to do the things that Paul exhorts us because Christ has already done the work for us and we should be emulating him. Time to go. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this precious word. Thank you for the exhortations which are given to us. And in six months, we could come back and have this study again and it would be just as relevant to our lives as it is today because we forget we get into other things, we move on to other doctrines, and then we need to be reminded about exactly what we're being told here. We need to live holy, we need to hold fast to what is good, we need to test all things because that is appropriate to do. Help us to do so, Lord. Give us wisdom in these things so that we will be honoring vessels, ready to be used by you for the work that you have set before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Right on time. Yes. Another minute. And pour my I keep forgetting that clock is five minutes fast. Yep, yep. Like, back to the thing. Yes, okay. <laughs>